As you see, the widespread persecution and opposition that God's people are facing. Do you ever find yourselves wondering, is God really able to overcome all of this? Is God's plan really still on track? Or has all of this opposition and persecution caused the plan to take a bit of a detour? See, even here in Northern Ireland, we are facing increasing opposition, it seems, in all kinds of different ways. So how should we respond to these realities? Is God really at work? Can God really work even despite all that we see going on, going on around us, even through what we see going on around us? Well, here in Acts chapter 12 tonight, I think we see Luke's resounding answer to these kinds of questions. And his answer is absolutely yes. God can and will continue to work. In fact, Acts 12 is here, I think, to to remind us and encourage us in the truth that our mighty God is at work continues to be at work even despite opposition that his people might face. And seeing that, I think, in Acts chapter 12 tonight is a bubble here to help us to increasingly trust, trust that that is the case, that our great and mighty God continues to be at work even in these kind of situations, as desperate, as hopeless as they might first seem. See, last Sunday evening, we left encouraged, didn't we, if we were with us. The gospel, you see, in Acts is continuing to go out. Steve spoke about the gospel stone there being dropped into the pond of the world, and we see the ripples going further and further out, reaching now even the Gentiles, like those in Antioch. Do you remember, we read last week that there in Antioch, amongst the Gentiles, The hand of the Lord was with them. And a great number who believed turned to the Lord. And later on in verse 24, Luke added that many, a great many people were added to the Lord. This is encouraging. The gospel is going out. But then into all of this encouragement comes the start of Acts chapter 12. If you look with me again there now. We read, about that same time, Herod the king laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. He killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. And when he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. And we find out then that Peter is only kept alive as it is here during Passover. This is a time the Jews wouldn't have permitted for someone to be sentenced to death or killed. But as soon as that time is over, it's pretty clear what Herod's plans are. He's going to kill Peter too. From these verses, it seems clear that the devil is not about to let this continued spread of the gospel go on without some kind of fight. The trajectory here. It's of people from every nation, every tribe and tongue, one day worshipping the Lamb, worshipping Christ. Well, that kind of thing 
That would be unthinkable for the devil, wouldn't it? And he's going to do whatever he can to stop it. So here, here's what's his plan. Well, in this case, strike right at the heart. Right at the heart of the church. Here in Jerusalem, where it all began. Where people would be continuing over the coming years to look for teaching. To look for encouragement, to look for guidance. And start with the apostles, right? First, James. And now Peter. See, as we look at the situation there, in verse 4, it is not looking good. Peter, soon to die, and then likely, surely, many more after that. So here's the question. Is God still at work? Can he overcome even a situation like this? Well, as we said, yes. As Luke is about to show us, he absolutely is. What we're going to see from verse 6 onwards this evening reminds us, and I hope will encourage us this evening, that even in a situation as desperate as this, our mighty God is able to overcome, to deliver, to deliver the oppressed, in this case Peter, and to judge the oppressor. Let's look at those two things in turn. First of all, if you turn with me to verses 6 to 11, let's see together first how God powerfully works to deliver the oppressed. As we've already said, in verse 6 we find Peter back in prison again. He's been there before, hasn't he? Acts 4, Acts 5. But this time surely there is no escape. Look at the detail here. Verse 6, we read that Peter is sleeping between two soldiers, bound with two chains. And back in verse 4, if you look with me, we're told that four squads of soldiers are guarding him. A squad is four people. So here we see 16 people. 16 people guarding one person, Peter, who's chained. It isn't looking good. And this night, from what we're told in verse 6, well, it's going to be Peter's last. Herod is about to bring him out. The Passover finished. Next in line, Peter's execution. But as we see this, just notice one fascinating detail here in passing. Even as Peter likely knows, he must know, this is his final night here on earth. What's he doing? Sleeping. That's kind of incredible, isn't it, when you think about it? He's, in fact, he's sleeping so soundly. We read in verse 7, the angel literally has to come and strike Peter on the side to wake him up. Now, maybe Peter was just exhausted. But I think we are meant to see here something else. The trust that Peter seemingly has in his God that he really does have even this situation under his control. God is and will continue to be at work. Whether that looks like for Peter following after James and being a martyr, or whether that means God somehow rescues him. Either way, Peter is a man here able to sleep, to rest. Resting in the fact that no matter what, God has a plan for his life. He is above it all. It's a powerful example to follow, isn't it? Resting in God's plan for our lives, no matter what. If we think of all of our circumstances and situations, can we trust God like this? 
Well, back to Peter. And we find out that for him, God's plan does mean deliverance and freedom. Just look how the story unfolds. Verse 7, this angel of the Lord stands next to Peter, shining a light into the cell. Eventually, then managing to wake Peter, Peter gets up, finds his chains simply fall off his hands. Verse 8, then we read that Peter obeys all that the angel tells him. He gets dressed, he wraps his cloak, and follows the angel. Verse 9. Now, comically even, this all seems to happen without Peter really properly waking up, doesn't it? Do you see in verse 9 there, he wonders, is this another vision? Just like the one I had a little while back in chapter 10. But no, it all continues on. And in verse 10, we then read that Peter passes by the first and the second guard, carrying on then until they reach the final iron gate, which swings open all by itself, leaving Peter on the street, a free man. And then with the angel now gone, at this point, verse 11, we read that Peter comes to himself. This wasn't a dream after all. This is actually happening, and he is free. And here's his conclusion, verse 11. Now I am sure that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me. This is Peter's point, and this is Luke's point, I think, in this passage as a whole. This has been the mighty, powerful hand of the Lord at work. The passage makes it clear, doesn't it? There is nothing here that Peter has done. He's he's been half asleep during all of this. This is the Lord's work. It is God who is powerfully delivering Peter. This just is who our God is. He is mightier than any oppressor of his people. Even the mightiest king or ruler here on earth, like Herod, would have liked to have thought of himself. Psalm 2 verse 2 says this, The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed. But verse 4 of the same psalm then tells us this, that he who sits in the heavens laughs. Isn't this a good example of Psalm 2 in action? Who is this Herod compared to God? What are his iron chains and gates? They're only things that God laughs at, that God can cause to fall off, open, at a simple, simple, single command. And as we see this, I think we should be encouraged again this evening. This really is who our God is. Often when we think of or pray for other believers who we hear of in desperate situations, or even when we just consider our own challenging circumstances or situations, I think we can deep down think, yes, I know who God is, but this really doesn't look good. What can God really do here? Well, here's the answer. Our sovereign, all-powerful God can do anything. He really can deliver that person. He really can help you in that circumstance or situation, if that's his will. Nothing is impossible for God. 
God doesn't bend his will to some oppressor or anyone else. No, God's will will be done. And if that's to work, as we see here, he is going to deliver his people. If that's what his plan is, he can and will do it. That is good news to remember this evening. But of course, as we consider this, right at the beginning of the passage, we also saw a different outcome, didn't we? For another of the apostles, James. Verse 2, he's killed by the sword. So what about James, we might well ask this evening? Why wasn't James delivered too? Well, the truth is, it's a good question. And we don't know the answer to that. But what we do know from what we've just seen, we do know what the answer isn't, don't we? It isn't that God wasn't able to save him. God absolutely was. He was able to save James, just as he saved Peter. This is where we bump up against our human limitations, isn't it? We, unlike God, are not sovereign. And we don't and we won't ever here on earth understand perfectly all that we see around us. Why some in these kinds of situations are saved, why some aren't. This isn't easy. There's no doubt about that. But this is why I think we also need, even in the situation of someone like James, to remember all that we do know about our God. That our God is good. That our God is just. But also, that God's greatest deliverance has already been given. Even to someone like James, who isn't physically delivered in this passage. See, if you glance back and look back over verses 6 to 11 with me again now, what we actually see here is a glorious outline of the gospel. This is a lot linked to what Steve was speaking about this morning. Here's how one commentator sums it up. Chained and unable to escape, asleep in our sin. Insensitive to it until God sends his Holy Spirit to break our shackles and set us free. Isn't that our passage here? What Peter experiences? Listen to these words which we sang as we finished this morning from the hymn, And Can It Be? They pick up again on all of this. Long my imprisoned spirit lay, fast bound in sin and nature's night, thine eye diffused a quickening ray. I woke just as here the dungeon flamed with light. My chains fell off, my heart was free. I rose, went forth and followed thee. The truth is that here on earth we will not understand God's ways, his timings, his sovereign plan at all times. Why one person with so much life left to live, seemingly, they die while another lives. But what we can understand and remember is this, that all who die trusting in Jesus ultimately have been delivered, been set free from sin. 
And because of that, death, no matter when it comes to them, well, that will not be the end for them. So we see here, I think, the trust that we can have in our mighty and powerful God. Our mighty God does continue to be at work, despite opposition, overcoming, in Peter's case, overcoming that opposition. He's, God has delivered the oppressed. But then also see with me the second way that we see this, the second way that we see mentioned, that God also judges the oppressor. For this, jump over to verses 18 to 23 with me. We'll come back to verses 12 to 17 in a little minute. First off, in verses 18 to 19, we see the result of what's just happened, of Peter's escape. That despite a frantic search, you can imagine it, can't you, with the, the soldiers, and then a frantic search by Herod, Peter isn't found. And the result of this is that Herod ultimately commands that those soldiers who had let Peter escape, well, they're going to be put to death. That's what he commands, isn't it? Just think of Herod here. No grace, no mercy. He passes judgment and he condemns to death. Which is ironic, isn't it? Given what's to come. Look with me from verses 20 and onwards. Here we see more of Herod's character. There we read that he is angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon. Seemingly, he stopped trade with these cities for some reason or another. And while he seems to relent, we read there that Blastus, uh, of Blastus, his personal chief of staff, he seems to get through to him, perhaps. Even there, even as he relents, it, it is still all about Herod and his own greatness, his reputation and fame. Look there in verse 21. In his royal robes, Herod delivers this oration. Presumably speaking here of his own greatness, of his grace and mercy as he seemingly relents on these cities and these people. To which they respond in verse 22. This is is the voice of a God and not of a man. Do you remember in chapter 10 where Peter had immediately rebuked Cornelius when he bowed down and worshipped him? Well, here we see the opposite. From what Luke says in verse 23, we see here Herod accepting this praise, taking it all to himself. Not giving God the glory, but giving himself that glory. And the response is, as Luke says here, immediate. God judges Herod. Verse 23, we read, immediately an angel of the Lord struck him down because he did not give God the glory. And he was eaten by worms and breathed his last. What we see here is divine judgment, isn't it? by the powerful, mighty God, on a wicked man. A man who had not only sought to oppress God's people, that's where this chapter started, but a man who had also then sought to steal God's glory for himself. Here we see the seemingly powerful king who had put James to death, who had looked to put Peter to death, who had commanded those guards be put to death, 
Well, he's not so powerful now, is he? He's condemned, put to death himself by the one true king. So much power, more powerful than Herod. And as we see this, again, I think it is meant to encourage us and to remind us our mighty God is still at work, even despite opposition. Yes, mighty rulers might come against God and his people, but God will judge them. He will judge the oppressor. He will judge those men and women. And their plans to stop the spread of the gospel, they will not prevail. Because who are they compared to the mighty, powerful God and all that he is? His plans will always prevail. Sometimes we will see that those plans involve a humbling, a judgment here on earth, just like with Herod. Sometimes that will be worked out in other ways. But make no mistake, no matter who comes against him, we can trust that God is at work. And we see that ultimately wrapped up in what Luke says in verse 24. See, initially at the start of the chapter, we were kind of left wondering, weren't we? Will the gospel continue this spread? Will those ripples continue on out to the ends of the earth? Now, because King Herod's standing in the way, isn't he? Doing all he can to stop it. Well, here's the result of all that we've just seen. Verse 24 But the word of God increased and multiplied. King Herod, he had done all he could to stop it, didn't he? But the word of God increased and multiplied. I hope that encourages you as much as it has encouraged me this past week. Our God is a mighty, powerful God and no ruler. No prime minister, no influencer out there on the internet, wherever they are, nobody anywhere on earth can stand against God's work. Our mighty God is able to deliver the pressed. He will judge the oppressor. And whether we see either or both of those things happen here on earth or not, we know that both of those things will ultimately one day happen when each of us stands before the throne. And on that day, the oppressed from God's people, they will be lifted up. And on that day, even the mightiest oppressor who sets themselves against God, they will be brought low. I mean, even going beyond this passage, just think with me then, on through the centuries since this all happened. The centuries, just think, how many other rulers or influential people have stood against God, stood against his people? There have been countless, aren't there? We couldn't even begin to number them. And yet, what is the situation today? There are more believers now, right to the ends of the earth, than there ever have been. John Lennon of the Beatles, he once famously said this, Christianity will go. It will vanish and shrink. I needn't argue about that. I'm right, and I'll be proved right. 
We're more popular than Jesus now. I don't know which will go first. Rock and roll or Christianity? Well, John, here's what our passage tells us. It isn't going to be Christianity. Why? Because God is not going anywhere. He is the same mighty, powerful God who will deliver his people, who will judge those who stand against him. He is the same God today as he was in Herod's day, in Peter's day. And he is today continuing his same sovereign work. That's something to hope and trust in, isn't it? Sometimes we see exactly how this all works out. Sometimes we don't. But we can be sure God is at work. No one, no matter how worldly impressive or important or influential will stop it. So if that is true, where does that leave us this evening? Well, I guess first and foremost, I hope it leaves us rejoicing, leaving here encouraged, knowing that nothing and no one can stand in the way of our God. But what about us then? What part do we then have to play in all of this? Do we have a part to play? Well, yes. Actually, we see incredibly our passage not only encourages us, you see, to remember the might of our God, to trust in him, but then it also calls us to be a part of his work. Incredibly, God has also chosen us as a means to his continuing work. And this is what we're going to see in the rest of our time together this evening. Here's the first and main way we see this. That God uses us in his work because specifically our mighty God is at work through prayer, through his people's prayers. I hope that some of you out there, as I've been speaking, have been thinking, but what about verse 5, Simon? (laughs) You missed it out. (laughs) Yeah, I absolutely did. We went straight, didn't we, from Peter being in prison in verse 4 to God's deliverance from verse 6 onwards. But sitting there gloriously shining out in the middle of this passage are these words from verse 5. So Peter was kept in prison, but earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. This is no coincidence That in verse 4, we see Peter heavily guarded. And then in verse 6, we begin to see God's work in delivering him. With verse 5 sitting in the middle. This is no coincidence because verse 5 is the heart of all of this. Earnest prayer by God's people is the means by which we then see God working from verse 6 onwards. Now, as we see this, I want us to see two truths about prayer, two truths about prayer from our passage. In fact, more than that, I want us to see from this passage two reasons to be praying earnestly, just like the church did then, two encouragements that should spur us on. First off, it's that just as we've seen, as we pray, we pray to a God who really is mighty and powerful to answer to answer our prayers, no matter the situation, no matter how bad it is. See, we pray to a God who can answer. 
See, if, I, if I'm at home, say, at the end of, the end of a long day, uh, I'm sitting on the sofa, I've got my feet up, feeling like, like I'll never move again. Anybody ever been in that kind of situation? But then you see, sometimes you realize, don't you, you really need a drink or, or maybe something, something to eat. What's your, what are your options? What, well, for me, in my house, I guess there are three people, three people that I could ask in that situation. Let's go through them. Three-year-old Naomi. Naomi, I really need a drink of water. Not a chance. <laughs> I didn't even think she could carry her own cup of water, like a little yard between, between the, uh, the, the sink and her, the table. Well, how about almost six-year-old Lydia Grace? Well, possibly. <laughs> She's getting there. I've seen her climb up onto the counter and get a cup. So I know, that, know there's a chance she can do that. But I'm still not sure I'm 100% confident that there on the sofa I get my drink or my snack. So that leaves me with Heather, my wife. Yeah, sorry, Heather. You're the chosen one. Unless, of course, I see that Heather needs, needs a sit-down even more than I do. In which case, those of you who we're doing marriage prep with at the moment, sacrificially, I still manage to get up and go and get myself a cup of water, her as well. But anyway, the point is this. We, I ask Heather. The point is this. We ask people who we know will actually be able to come through, to answer us, who will be able to do what we ask of them. And so it is here with the church in Acts 12. Seeing the desperate situation that Peter finds himself in. The church there, verse 5, desperately, they earnestly turn to the one person they know can answer them. God. See, it's there. They pray to God. They know the truth of all that we've seen up to this point this evening, don't they? That God is able to work, even despite opposition. He can overcome opposition. He can overcome anything. So they plead with him in prayer. So much so that in verse 12, after Peter has escaped, we read of him going to Mary's house, where in the middle of the night, Peter seems to interrupt the church's continued prayer meeting. That seems to be the picture. This isn't just the church earnestly praying for a few minutes and then moving on or for even just a few minutes a day. No, this seems to be an ongoing, concerted effort of prayer. We could even see this as a 24-hour prayer effort going on here. But now here's the funny thing about our passage. And I think we're meant to learn something from this. See, the church are praying here. And they're praying to God, presumably because they know that God is able to answer. But even still, if you look back with me at those verses we skipped, verses 13 and onwards, we see that the church is still surprised when he does. Look at what happens when Peter arrives at Mary's door. Verse 13, he knocks, and this servant girl, Rhoda, comes to answer. Uh, as she forgets to open the door in her joy, goes back, tells the others this great news, and what's their response? No way. They don't believe her. You're out of your mind, Rhoda. Must be an angel, some kind of guardian angel of Peter. It can't be Peter. 
Only Peter's continued knocking in verse 16 makes them investigate further. And when they do, they realize that it is actually Peter. And look at the end of verse 16. What's their response? They are amazed. Amazed. But Peter, you were in jail. But, but Peter, how did you get here? What's going on? How did this happen? You can imagine all those kind of questions and more. And I'm asking Peter, and yet here are the answers. Here's the fundamental answer to all of those questions. The church prayed, the Lord answered. As Peter says to them in verse 17, here's his answer. The Lord brought me out of prison. As simple as that. As we see the believer's reaction here, again, here is the point, I think. We should pray to God because he really, actually can answer. He is a mighty God who is able to answer them. Answer our prayers. Like, like actually answer them. We pray, don't we? The church seems surprised here. But because of who we pray to, we don't need to be surprised. We shouldn't be surprised. When God answers, we pray to a God who can answer all of our prayers. We genuinely can expect answers too. When we pray, let's pray expectantly. So that's our first reason from our passage to pray earnestly, to get praying together because we know that God is powerful to answer. Here's the second reason then. And again, I think we see this in the positioning here of verse 5 in our passage. It's the turning point in it all, isn't it? Peter in prison, verse 4, God works to save him, verse 6 onwards. Why? Because God has ordained that he will work through prayer. Verse 5, the people's prayers genuinely are a means through which God works. See, given who God is, he absolutely could have rescued Peter apart from prayer. But that isn't how God had ordained it to be. He ordained that the deliverance of Peter would come about through the means of prayer. And all of this is amazing. Because actually, it's something for us to get hard to get our heads around. But all of this is amazing because it means that our prayers actually matter. When we pray... God works. Because that's how he has ordained it to be. And that, that means that that prayer that you prayed this morning, that prayer that you prayed this morning for that family member who's struggling, that prayer that you prayed for your non-Christian friend, that prayer that you prayed for the persecuted church in China or wherever it is, that prayer mattered. Isn't that incredible? Not only was your prayer heard by God, but, but it's powerful. Because it could be the means by which God has ordained that he will work. The way he's a work, he will work to encourage your family member, to open your friend's eyes, to prevent that house church leader in China from being arrested. As I said, this is kind of hard for us to get our heads around, but it is absolutely amazing. We should pray because God genuinely works through our prayers. Our prayers change things. Our prayers accomplish things. 
As we look at the example of the church here, even with their surprise in verses 14 to 16, it's an inspiring one, I think, isn't it? What we see the church doing. It's an example to learn from and imitate. Are we meeting together like this, like the early church here, in earnest prayer to God? Yes, this is a particular moment of crisis in the early church, isn't it? But there are plenty of very, very big things for us to be earnestly praying about today too. People sick or struggling in the church. We've got a major building project going on. We've got a society that seems to increasingly be turning its back on Christianity and its morals and and values. And we know, don't we, as we said at the beginning, of believers who right around the world now are facing imprisonment, death, for the sake of Christ, just as Peter had faced here. Remembering all that, now imagine if we actually believed that our prayers for those things matters. And imagine if we remembered that as we pray, we are praying to a mighty God who is completely able to answer them. Wouldn't that leave us increasingly on our knees? Wanting to be more on our knees, praying to God more of the time. Wouldn't that leave us as a church not wondering, should I, hmm, should I come to that Wednesday night prayer meeting? But yeah, let's go. And then let's look for as many other opportunities to pray together as we can. It's so encouraging, for example, to hear of that group that are planning to meet here at the church at the same time as as Hope Explored. Praying for it. That feels so in sync with what we see here in this passage, isn't it? A situation that we long for God to work in. How do we respond? We pray. We long, don't we, for people to hear about the deliverance of Jesus through that time in Hope Explored, to come to him for forgiveness. So we need, don't we, as a church, to be praying earnestly for that. In light of all of this, I'd really encourage you, get along to that maybe on Tuesday evening if you can. Plan, if you don't already, to come along as regularly as you can to the Wednesday prayer meetings. Maybe for you, those those things are tricky. Maybe for you also another way, just to think. Think outside the box even. What would it look like for you to be meeting together with other believers here in the church to pray? Purposefully pray. Our passage this evening reminds us that right at the heart of God's work are his people's prayers. Let's not let it be said of us here at Great Vic. We don't have because we don't ask God. Let's pray and earnestly seek him wherever and whenever we can. Finally, as we close, here's one more thing just to notice in passing. That just as God is at work through prayer, he is also at work through his word. And this is the second way that then I think we see ourselves playing our part in God's work. Look again at verse 24. We read there that the word of God increased and multiplied. How? Through his people. That's what we've seen right the way through Acts, isn't it? It's the witness of God's people. They're the ones spreading the word. It's God's work, but his people are a part of it. 
And that's what verse 25, I think, leads us on to, I think, as well. Up to now, the word of God has increased and multiplied as his people speak of Jesus. And now in verse 25, we see just the beginnings of how that's going to continue. Look at that. We see Barnabas and Saul. And then we also see this relatively unknown at this point, John Mark. Again, as we leave, I want this to encourage us this evening. There will be great preachers and teachers like Saul, like Paul, who God and can and will use. But there's also the John Marks, the everyday person. Both of those people can be involved in the work of God. Why? Because in the hands of both of them is the powerful word of God. Which back then was already increasingly increasing and multiplying and which is continuing to do that. Knowing and trusting God is at work, no matter the circumstances, I think again encourages us to play our part. To speak the word of God boldly. Knowing God works through that for the growth of his kingdom. That's what we're going to go on to see. I hope you're excited about it in the next few chapters as we go into these missionary journeys. God's word is going to continue to change lives. God's word is going to speak hope to people. It's going to bring light into darkness. So let's this evening get speaking God's word boldly, knowing that it will not return to him empty, knowing that it will accomplish all that he purposes it to. Remembering all of these things, let's get praying and let's get speaking. Let's pray that as God's word goes out in hope explored and and all kinds of different ways, that God would be at work and let's speak wherever we can the word of God, knowing that that is a means that God will use. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for what we have seen here this evening. First and foremost, just of who you are. Thank you for this reminder, Lord, that you are a mighty and powerful God and that no king or ruler or any other person can stand in your way. Lord, we thank you for that. Lord, please could you help us to be encouraged by that this week as we go on, as we press on in following you. Lord, that we look to you who is in charge of all things. And Lord, would that encourage us then to pray to you? Lord, knowing that as we pray, nothing that we ask is impossible for you. So Lord, would you stir us, stir our hearts, spirit, come and embolden us. Embolden us and encourage us to pray. Encourage us to pray, knowing that as we pray, that is a means that you have chosen to work through. Lord, we, are, we don't understand that completely. And yet, Lord, we want to we live in light of that. So make us more and more a prayerful people. And then, Lord, would you help us to be speaking, speaking boldly your word, that it would be said today, just as it was said back then, that your word is increasing and multiplying. Lord, we long for that in our city. 
Please do that work here. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, we're going to um, close our time together by singing this song, King of Kings. It's a song we've sung a couple times here before. And just towards the end, we see here, it picks up on the book of Acts. Verse 4 will say, And the church of Christ was born, and the Spirit lit the flame. Now this gospel truth of old shall not kneel, shall not faint. Today, that same gospel message, the word of God, is going out. So let's stand as we uh, finish, as we sing together this song.
And now may the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with us all.